Well, we're continuing along in the book of Joshua, and uh, this is just going to be one of those um, sermons where we, we cover some interesting uh, factoids, and along the way, I hope, pick up some applications. Uh, some of it we've, in a way, covered already. Some of it is going to be new. Some of it is things that we haven't quite, quite mentioned yet in our studies in Joshua. So I think we'll find a lot of uh, little um, biblical insights and, and tidbits and um, background to understand some of this text. But uh, some of the application, I'll be honest, um, is some of the same good old applications of obeying the Lord, <laughs> trusting the Lord. Um, walking in faith and those sorts of things, but I don't want to. I don't want to diminish any of that. Um, but let us uh, just jump into the text in Joshua chapter fourteen, and we're, we'll read the first five verses to begin with. Joshua chapter fourteen. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as Yahweh had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and a half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one half tribes beyond the Jordan, but to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim, and no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in with their pasture lands for their livestock and their substance." The people of Israel did as Yahweh commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Now, what I won't cover, which we covered last week, was um, what was going on with the, the tribes, the, the two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan, Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph, uh, and uh, why the Levites did not have any inheritance in land. We covered that, I think, fairly thoroughly last week. So if you... Um, or listening to this message on the internet or something. Uh, if you want more information about that, you can go back to last week's and hear all about that. So um, this is an introduction to the allotments of the land, the promised land, west of the Jordan. Last week we covered that which was east of the Jordan. Um, and that was, of course, um, you had the Manasseh and... Um, you had Manasseh and... Uh, Ephraim and the, Ru- or, I'm sorry, Manasseh, the Reubenites, and the Gadites, <laughs> all right, or half the tribe of Manasseh, and the Reubenites and the Gadites. Those, those were on the east side of the Jordan, um, but the west side of the Jordan technically is the land that was promised to Abraham that his descendants would dwell in, or this, technically speaking, is the promised land, is this area to the west of the Jordan River. And um, there's going to be sort of a particular attention paid to that. Now, it's called here the land of Canaan. What does that mean? We've seen the Canaanites and uh, that reference to a group of people. But why is it called the land of Canaan when it seems like there's a lot of people that live there? Not just Canaanites, but all of these ites, the Perizzites and the Hittites and um, and. And so on. So, why is it called the land of Canaan now here? Well, Canaan does again call us back to what was promised to Abraham back in uh, Genesis 17 8. You don't have to turn there. Um, but in Genesis 17 8, where, where you have really a reiteration of the covenant promise that the Lord made to Abraham, he says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I'll be their God. So it was called that even back in uh, Abraham's day, let's say around 2000 BC or so, and uh, the time of Joshua is more like 1400. So it's 600 years have passed, but it's still called the land of Canaan. What is that referring to? Well, Canaan, if it doesn't refer to the geographical land, or the people groups that live in the land, it refers to a man the son of Ham, who was the youngest son of Noah. So if you remember your Sunday school lessons, when God decided to judge the whole earth in a flood, he saved Noah, his, uh, his wife, and his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives, that's eight people in total. So Canaan is the son of of Ham, who is the youngest son of Noah, but he is a cursed son. 
If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 through 25, Genesis 9 is uh, essentially the end of the flood. So we've had the flood waters, the ark's been bobbing along the ocean, um, the waters have finally receded, people are um, getting back on the land, the animals are getting back on the land. God has made that promise with Noah using the, the rainbow as the symbol of his covenant. All that stuff has happened, and this is what follows. Genesis chapter 9. Uh, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Right, So there's the time. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. In other words, everyone came from these four people, or eight people, them and their wives. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Now he goes on to bless the other two sons. Now this is a really bizarre almost kind of scene to happen right after one of the most notable um, events of the Bible, namely the flood. And it seems almost bizarre that right after you have this really kind of incredible um, restoration and rescue of humanity, you have Noah, this man of faith that built this ark uh, over the span of many, many years. Now, one of the first things he does, once he has a chance, I mean, you've got no wine yet, right? It's all been destroyed. It's almost like the first chance he gets, you know what I'm going to do? Well, as soon as I get the chance, I'm going to get drunk. Well, what's the process there? You've got to plant a, a vineyard, you've got to grow the grapes, and you've got to crush that, you've got to wait for it to ferment. I mean, it, it, it kind of just, it is a little bit of a hint that there is a serious problem within humanity within all human beings, this problem of sin. So you are to be somewhat shocked, but then what you're also shocked at is his sons, or not all of his sons, but Ham at least, seems to also um, just be out of his mind. How could you witness the entire planet being destroyed and still have the audacity to sin so bluntly. Now, looking at your father's nakedness, it was a, a big deal. It's something that was uh, tremendously shameful and sinful. The possibility that my, there might be more involved with seeing the nakedness because it just seems like there's, um, there's a, a huge reaction to this. And it's even possible that when it says, you know, he awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. Well, you know, what, what did... Ham do? I mean, he, he saw his father's nakedness. Was it going to tell his brothers? Was that the thing that he did? So some commentators say that maybe he had done something to his father in his compromised situation, and the text is just not elaborating. But the point of it is, is even after the events of the flood, um, you see very, uh, very clear and laid bare here, as, as, as laid naked and bare as Noah is the sinfulness of man. Now, it says many times here, it seems to be emphatic that Ham was the father of Canaan. And in a way that whatever is going to become of the Canaanites is not good because of the events that happen here with Ham. Now, you, either Canaan, now the son of Ham, was more directly involved here because it seems kind of peculiar, right? That Ham, even though it seems like he's the one who sinned, that Canaan seems to get all the, the punishment for it, uh, per se. Uh, but it could be that when it says the youngest son in verse 24, that maybe that's a reference to, to Canaan, who is the youngest son of Ham. Or, and this is, I think, more likely, there's sort of a foreshadowing of the downfall of Canaan in the actions of Ham. God does strictly prohibit and rebuke punishing the iniquity of the father's on the sons. So we know at the least what is happening here is not that Canaan 
is getting the blame for Ham's sin, that Canaan was innocent, that Canaan's a good guy. Rather, what sometimes happens is God can proclaim blessing and cursings on others in a sort of prophetic way, or in a sense, foreshadowing that Canaan was going to also fall into the same shameful wickedness and sin as his father Ham. So there is a sense of like father, like son. It doesn't mean that the son is being blamed for the sins of the father, but that the son, by virtue of being the son, learned the same kinds of bad habits and bad sins. And so uh, he and his descendants would bear out a curse for many, many, many generations. So in some ways, the promise of Abraham, which comes you know, a few chapters later, is that the sons of faithfulness, right, of Japheth, of Shem, that the sons of faithfulness would one day judge and inhabit the land of the sons of Canaan, the sons of shame and cursing. So when you see Canaan, uh, it can refer to a geographical location. It can refer to um, a people group, the Canaanites, that'd be the descendants generically of of Canaan. Uh, But it could also refer to this man, and um, they are all related that those who became Canaanites came from Canaan and they inhabited this certain geographic location that uh, God in his, uh, in his uh, judgment would eventually um, bring about uh, this, uh, this uh, conquering and this conquest where they would be removed from the land by the sons of Abraham. So that little note about the land of Canaan, that's what that refers to. Next, you have a mention here of Eliezer the priest, and his name comes before Joshua's. And so that tells you that he is someone of some significance and importance. Well, who is Eliezer the priest? Eliezer was one of Aaron's sons. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the brother of Moses. And if you recall from the book of Exodus and all the affairs that happen between Moses and the Pharaoh and all of that, Aaron was Moses' right-hand man and his spokesman even at times, at least at the beginning. When Moses told God, God, you have the wrong man. I'm very slow to speak. I can't be your uh, spokesperson before Pharaoh. God says, well, here's Aaron, your brother. He will speak to you. I will be God to you, Moses. Moses, you'll be like God to Aaron. I'll give you the words to speak. You'll give Aaron the words to speak. So Aaron, actually, at the beginning of all of the, you know, let my people go things, he was likely more the one doing the talking than Moses. But as time went on, Moses uh, came to step into that role. In any case, Aaron um, and Moses were of the tribe of Levi. And if you remember the Levite, the Levitical tribe, which is mentioned here in Joshua, They were the ones who served in the temple, and from them the priesthood came, the Levites. Now, there was a special priest that would come, uh, the high priest, who could only come especially from the line of Aaron. So in Aaron's lineage was, uh, could only come, or from Aaron's lineage alone could the high priest come, uh, that distinct, unique role that Aaron played in Moses' life is sort of blessed, you could say, in being the only line from which high priests could come. Eliezer was one such priest over all the priests. And then uh, after Aaron, the first original high priest died, Eliezer took his father's place as the high priest, receiving his garments as a symbol of that transition. So this is Eliezer, son of Aaron, high priest over all the priests, of Israel. Now, if you're observant, you might notice a problem here. What's the problem? Well, weren't Joshua and Caleb supposed to be the only survivors of those who had wandered in the wilderness? There shouldn't be anyone alive from the time of Moses and Aaron, because that's the generation that died in the wandering. So how is Eliezer still here and not left in the desert. How come he gets to see the land? Now, um, and how is he a part of partitioning the land? Well, it seems like, actually, the Levites were exempt from that curse upon that generation. Um, And there's uh, four different reasons that the Levites were probably not a part of that curse um, that was put upon Israel that, you know, all of your generation... Uh, who came out of Egypt, will die. 
of which Eliezer was one of them. Um, The first one is, as we've seen in Joshua 13 and 14, the Levites don't have a stake in the land. They're not inheritors of the land, so they don't need to be punished and prohibited from entering the land and receiving their inheritance because they don't technically have an inheritance in the land. That's one um, reason. A second one is, remember the whole reason that Joshua and Caleb, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, uh, that Joshua and Caleb were exempt from this was because when the 12 spies were sent into the promised land, before all of the wanderings and before they were cursed to not be able to enter the land, the Levites didn't send a spy. All the other tribes did. This is Numbers 13. But the Levites didn't send a spy to go out with them. So originally, basically, you had Joshua and Caleb and 10 other spies repre- representing the, the other 12 tribes. The 10 of them gave back that report that, no, we can't possibly win a fight in the promised land. Joshua and Caleb alone Again, we'll get, get to this in just a second. They're the ones who said, no, we can, we can do this. The Lord is with us. Um, but the people listened to the 10 spies, not to Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb alone get spared uh, to be able to enter into the land because of their faithfulness. But the tribe of Levites actually weren't, didn't, again, have any stake in the land. They didn't send any spies, so it makes sense that they would be exempt from that curse as well. Uh, we also see that they were not numbered with the rest of Israel. In Numbers chapter 1, Verse 46 through 50, you don't have to turn there. Um, there's a count made of all the, uh, all, the, all the people in Israel. And in particular, what they needed to know was what was the number of the fighting men of Israel. But it, the Levites weren't counted in that number because they are not supposed to do that. That's not their job. Their job is to serve the Lord by being workers in the temple and priests. So they weren't counted like Israel with the rest of Israel are, are considered with them. They seem to be set apart. And fourthly and lastly, and this is what we saw last week, the Levites demonstrated uh, a zeal and faithfulness to the Lord in that they did not join, that, um, they did not join in the worship of uh, the golden calf. And instead, they were willing to take up arms, remember, to kill their own brothers who were were worshiping false gods, they were willing to. It's kind of what we mean is the, the priesthood. They earned the priesthood by the shedding of the blood of their brothers because they're willing to, uh, for the sake of God and his honor, kill their own fellow brothers. So um, because of that kind of zeal and faithfulness, even to the point of killing um, their own who were sinning against God, they are not considered like the rest of Israel. So you add all that up, and it, I think an argument can be made. It's never stated explicitly, but an argument can be made, especially with Eliezer being right there, despite over and over again the text saying that Joshua and Caleb alone were spared, that the whole tribe of Levi was likely spared from that curse. So there's other takes on that and other interpretations, but I think that one's the, uh, the most likely. Now, why is Eliezer uh, here at the allotment of the land? It seems like not a, necessarily a, a priestly duty. Well, um, it's because of this part where it says that the land was going to be given by lot. Or you could say in more modern vocabulary, by lottery, right? A lot meant that the decision was completely up to God and without any partiality or prejudice. Therefore, you know, the, you can imagine you've got... Nine and a half tribes out there arguing. You could imagine they'd argue about the fairness of which land they were going to get. I mean, I've, I've seen some pretty, um, pretty zealous fights over like Monopoly and board games about, you know, property and how dare you take that. You can just imagine when it's the promised land that God has given, you can imagine them arguing and fighting about, oh, you got that land. No, you don't deserve that, blah, blah, blah. So... Uh, when you do it by lots, though, no one can argue because who is in charge of those lots? The Lord is. So you'd find yourself arguing with God. That's the idea there. And so when you see that these other leaders were there, they're not there to debate. They're there to be witnesses and to say, yep, we, we saw the same lot cast and we can agree that this is um, what the Lord wanted to happen. So we're all here. You know, we're all witnesses to this. 
Um, now, the reason that Eliezer specifically was involved, the high priest, is because the choosing of the slot or choosing by lot or lottering probably meant the use of the Urim and Thummim, right? That's U-R-I-M, Urim and Thummim, T-H-U-M-M-I-M. What is that? <laughs> uh, literally, the words Urim and Thummim mean lights and perfection. And in Exodus chapter 28, verse 30, um, Exodus 28, 30 describes what the high priest uh, wore when he was executing his priestly duties. And one thing that is described there is like these stones, um, the umim and the thumim, or urim and thumim, that would be on the breastplate that the high priest would wear. And um, they were to be used in circumstances where they needed to know what the will of the Lord was, or when there was a lot to be cast um, to sort of certify it. Now, what <laughs> this is my take, all right? So this, there's nothing said. There's nothing said about how these work. There's references to them, but there's no, like, mechanism. There's not, like... You know, did it operate with dice? Did they light up? Was one a yes and one a no? And one would glow, you ask a question, one would glow, or the other one would glow. Nothing. No, no mention of the mechanics of how this operated. Um, it, it's probably in God's wisdom so that we didn't try to, I don't know, make an idol of that or of these stones or something. Actually, some commentators... Um, say that maybe it, they just symbolized that when people came to the high priest for judgment, he would ask the Lord and whatever wisdom the Lord gave, that was the will of God, you know, something like that. But I, I tend to think that there was something happening. The use of those Urim and Thummim was something supernatural that was happening there. Um, in fact, just the way, like lights and perfection, why those two words? Well, light in the Bible is something that reveals, right? Perfection is you know, perfection. So I think the idea of truth um, or, or that these stones reveal God's perfect will, his perfect light, a revelation of how things should be. So I think uh, there's a sense that that's at least what they are, are being used for is to reveal God's perfect will. And they're somehow instrumental in that. I don't think they're just ornamental, like, you know, they just represent that the holy, the high priest can just, you know, ask the Lord and, and, Whatever he says, that must be it. I think there's something supernatural going on, but we don't know. I mean, anything you read about that will be a commentator or um, speculating, okay? Either way, there's... um, Either way, this is not a typical way to determine the will of God, either for the Israelites or for us, all right? The casting of lots is not anything normative. This was explicitly commanded by God to do the lots this way. So it's not as if we need to come up with some system or some way or that every decision we make, we, we roll a dice. I remember as a kid, it'd be something as silly as, all right, I'm going to make a, you know, I'm at the basketball court. If I make this free throw, right, that means I should do this. Or this is going to happen. It's just the way children think. That's not what God is advocating for. In fact, Numbers chapter 26. This is actually where God commands uh, the inheritance of the land being partitioned by lot. Uh, it's, sort of, um, it's sort of a funny explanation or description of what's supposed to happen. Numbers chapter 26, verse 53. Let's start in verse 52. <laughs> Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, among these, the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance and to a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inheritance. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. So on the one hand, it's saying you need to give the big chunks of land, bigger chunks of land to the big tribes and the smaller chunks of land 
to the smaller tribes. But then it also says you need to cast lots to divide the land. Well, well which is it? Because those seem completely contradictory, right? Either we're going to do this, and you look at a huge tribe, you say, okay, you get this big track of land. This little, you know, rinky-dink tribe, you say, okay, you get the, you know, just this part. Or is it completely, the rabbis, actually the tradition of the rabbis is that there's just two bowls. One had the names of the tribes, one had the names of the regions, and you just pick one and pick the other. And, you know, maybe one of the Urim or Thummim would light up or something. But that's kind of even how they viewed it. Which is it? Well, again, this is sort of, sort of hard to just reconcile because we don't typically like um, to say both are true. But in a sense, both are going to be true. God is going to, through the use of lots, divide the land such that the large tribes will get the larger lands and the small tribes will get the smaller lands. It's going gonna, it's gonna to end up that way. Uh, in, in other words, um, he's going to demonstrate through the use of the lots that he can perfectly take care of these tribes and their needs, that he's not going to cram a, a, a great big tribe into some small teeny piece of land. He's not going to do that. He knows that they need a big land. So kind of a both and, God both by lots, and then you're going to actually see later in in uh, Joshua, the process of, of the land is going to break down. So they're actually going to form a little committee um, and, uh, and, and divvy out, further divvy out the land. Um, but God is not someone, this whole thing with lots, God is not someone that you test by the casting of lots, by saying, God, if I make this free throw, then you owe me a million dollars or something. Like, that is not how God intends to operate. Even here in Numbers 26, even though it's a little bit confusing, the point is God is going to take care of your needs. Maybe you don't always know how that's going to happen. Maybe as far as we look at it, it seems totally random or like a, a throw of the dice. But as a proverb say, every cast of the lots in the lap is in the Lord's hand. So God is in sovereign control. We don't need to then try to assume that we need to cast lots in order to make decisions, okay? What are some applications just from these first five, five verses of Joshua 14? Well, um, I, I think one of them is exactly that, that we ought to trust in God's ability to care for us, um, that we don't need to make anything a matter of a toss of the dice. In fact, um, while that's something that the Israelites did and were sometimes commanded to do, like here, in the New Testament, you don't ever have any kind of uh, command to determine anything by the casting of lots. Rather, you have a lot more um, that talks about living by faith. Hmm? Right. Right, but that wasn't like a command from God to do it that way, right? That was the apostles deciding, um, deciding that way, right? So there's no command, at least as far as I can recall in the New Testament, um, of, of God commanding you do it. That was, in a way, because you had sort of a, a toss-up, I think, between a few different men, right? And to be impartial. So casting lots is a way to be impartial about things, uh, all other things being equal. Um, and uh, it... That's a different kind of idea, right? This is like, um, you want to be careful with this. You want to be, like, it's, I don't know that it's ever this way. So, you know, if you had like three people you could marry or something, like, I suppose you could cast lots for that. Like, oh, you know, all of the things being equal, they're just completely equal in every way. So I want to make sure I show total impartiality so that none of the other two women get offended. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, toss a dice and then those two ladies will have to blame God that kind of attitude is not anywhere like commended um, in the in the New Testament right it says a lot more about you know living by faith making active decisions by faith um, by faith but I, I mean it's so it's not but it's not wrong to let's say um, you know how, how much <laughs> I don't know how much salad do we need for, for lunch? Or where do you want to go to, you know, to, to dinner? And you just, okay, let's just think of a number between one. I mean, that's, so, that's okay. I, I, I just, as far as making like critical life choices and decisions, 
By lot, there's no idea that that's the way you would, you would do it. It's not wrong. It's not illegal or sinful necessarily. But you do want to be careful about testing the Lord because there is a way to do that that would be to test the Lord. And, and, and in a sense, it would, um, here's one way you would do it. It's like one, one way is if, if the results really do depend on you. Like if I'm shooting free throws, if I'm very good at that, Right, and I and I make a bet based on that, or a deal with God based on my ability to shoot. Through. I I influence that decision. Casting of the lots is not influenced by my skill or my input to it. Uh, another way that could be sinful is if you're kind of de- trying to make, um, trying to say that God, or, or trying to ask God about doing something that's against His will. Like you you know it's against His will to do it. But say like marry an unbeliever, just going along with that. Like you're not supposed to marry an unbeliever, but if you're like, okay, God, if I uh, if I pass two red lights on the way to church, that means you want me to marry an unbeliever. Like that kind of thing, where you're trying to see if the Lord wants you to do something unbiblical, that would be wrong. That'd be testing the Lord. But again, like you can, I mean, other things. Yeah, you could do that. The Bible is not saying it's inherently sinful or wrong, or even to play games of chance. It's not like. Um, any kind of game with cards or dice is immediately precluded or something like that. Some, some Christians believe that. But in any case, um, I, I think the better road to take is uh, we, we trust in God's ability to care for us. We walk by faith. Um, it shouldn't be a normative thing. Even then, it wasn't a normative thing to make decisions by casting lots. All right, so we can talk more about that later if you want. Okay. Uh, another thing I think we can see by this is that God's plan is unfolding, even though we're, we're seeing that there's going to be um, some instances, we're going to see more later, but the, the people fall short of perfect obedience here. I guess you see a hint of it in the story with Canaan, is that these are not good reasons for the Canaanites. The Canaanites being there is not a good thing. It's because of what Ham did. But God's plan unfolds unimpeded. Uh, He knows what he's doing. Um, We're going to see that the people don't quite get all the people out of the land, and yet God is still going to be gracious and blessed. So um, God's plan unfolds, even when we haven't done everything exactly God's way. Um, This oftentimes goes with this idea of like, testing the Lord by casting lots and things, because uh, what can happen is sometimes um, you'll realize, I didn't do what God wanted me to do in this case, whether because you, you know, tested the Lord by casting lots and you think, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, but some, there are some strains of Christian thinking that say, if you miss God's perfect will, you're kind of on a second tier track now. Like you could have been on the main track you know, and you would have been really super blessed, but because you screwed up, now you're on this other track. It's still going to be good, but it's not quite as good as if you had been on this main track. So, you know, you shouldn't have screwed up, and that's why you don't want to screw up the next one, because if you screw up again, you're going to be on this third, you know, plan C with God. That is not how God works. You know, God, that's to suggest that God's plans get get foiled, um, but they don't, you know. So I, I think despite what Ham did, despite what Noah did, God's God has a plan that's panning out exactly the way he wants. Um, so there's just a couple of thoughts I had in terms of application, thinking of uh, these first five verses. Next, we have Caleb. Verse 6 of Joshua 14. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. If you remember, Gilgal is kind of um, right across the Jordan River. That's kind of where they have their army base camp. So uh, Joshua is still there. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what Yahweh said to Moses, the man of God, in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of Yahweh, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And they brought him word again, as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. Yet I wholly followed Yahweh my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have followed, wholly followed Yahweh my God. And now behold, Yahweh has kept me alive, just as he said. These 45 years since the time that Yahweh spoke this word to Moses while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. 
I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which Yahweh spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that Yahweh will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as Yahweh said. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. Therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite to this day, because he wholly followed Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from war. We're reminded again of the existence of Caleb, and we'll talk about um, him kind of being in the, the background of this whole conquest so far. Um, real fast, we can kind of figure out the number of years that the conquest took. It was 40 years when he went to spy. Um, there was 38 years of wandering. So there was seven years of conquest in the promised land from when they came over the Jordan. So this time is seven, approximately seven years that they were fighting with all the different ites, okay? Now, who is Caleb? Already referenced, and he kind of reviews the story from uh, from the book of Numbers, where they uh, sent out spies to the promised land, and 12 spies, 10 of them said, well, the land is great, but it's inhabited by people who look like giants. So there's no way that we can conquer this on our own. Versus Joshua and Caleb who said, Yes, that's true, but absolutely with Yahweh on our side, we can win this because God, God is for us. And so the people instead listened to um, the 10 other spies rather than Joshua and Caleb. And so Joshua and Caleb alone remain outside of the, the Levites uh, to enter into the promised land. Now, Caleb has a somewhat mysterious origin story. He's called son of Jephunneh, the Kenesite, many times here, and he's called that many times in, um, in the previous books of the Bible as well, namely Numbers. Um, other passages also name him as related um, to the Kenesites, again, through his father Jephunneh. So it seems clear, um, because these Kenesites are not Israelites, that at some time, some of the Kenizzites must have joined Israel as proselytes, as converts, and somehow were brought into the tribe of Judah through this um, conversion to the religion of the Jews. So uh, Caleb's relation to the Kenizzites is in a way just another one of those demonstrations of believing Gentiles being integrated into, um, into Israel and even into the tribe of Judah. So despite that heritage, he is listed in other places many times as from the tribe of Judah, even though it routinely calls him, again, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. Um, so it's likely, they say, that Caleb's mother was of the tribe of Judah, and perhaps it was his father um, that was the Gentile. But he is not spoken of very much, and we'll come to maybe a, a little bit of an application with that in mind. So again, he kind of recounts his achievements and he recounts this promise that Moses had made to him that the land that he went to spy out, which happened to be in this case, that land of Hebron, and you can see the map on the back of your, your outline sheet there, that Moses promised that that land would be yours and your sons when you arrive there. So now he's calling in uh, that promise to Caleb. Um, there's a sense again that things have kind of stalled out. They had made that military conquest. The rulers and kings have all been killed, but the people have not been entirely driven out, including these Anakim, who were these uh, giants in the land. And so there's still stuff left to be done. Joshua, what are you doing? So Caleb, it's his birthday. He's realized I'm 85. I still haven't got the lands. Is that, is that peace here? So uh, what, what remains? Well, there are still some folks that are, we talked about this last week, that are still just there that have not been driven out or even killed from that land. So he goes to Joshua. Well, you know, it's not said here this way, but it's almost like, what's, what's going on? What's the delay? I'm here to get what Moses has promised. And if it's a problem of manpower, I still have all the strength that I did 45 years ago. 
So um, that's quite a sentiment to make. I don't know if he's posturing or if that was divinely true, that he still at 85 had the strength that he had at, at 40. Although as I think about it, my dad might still be able to beat me up. So I'm 40, he's, he's almost 80, so he's, he, is pretty, he is pretty tough. He goes to the gym a lot more than I do. So maybe, maybe it is possible, or maybe he was just a weakling, I doubt it, you know, at 40. And I, I don't think that's the case. Whatever it is, uh, he is absolutely confident. I know he's referencing his own strength there, but you have to understand that I think some of it is... is um, this is me inferring this, but I think some of it is kind of pointing out, it doesn't matter how old I am, Moses, or Joshua. If the Lord said, we can take them on, we can take them on, and my age is irrelevant. Now, he's saying he's just as strong then, but I imagine a lot of, you know, I'll probably say something like that to Uriah. You know, I'm just as strong now as, as when, when, I was, uh, when you were this high, Uriah. You're going to try and arm wrestle me, or whatever it is, and I'm going to still talk like that. Um, but truly, because it has, is so clear um, that his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord, that really he's saying, it, age is irrelevant. Yahweh is the one who promised. So there's nothing that I can't do. doesn't matter how old I am. There's nothing I cannot do. And it's interesting because he refers to the land the same way that those 10 spies referred to the land, that, oh, there is a people there in this hilly country. There's Anakim that are, you know, tallest trees, and they live in these great fortified cities with all these walls. We cannot take them. So what does Caleb see? A challenge. (laughs) He doesn't see uh, a reason to fear. He pretty much says, bring it on. And again, it's because in places like Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Yahweh says, you will encounter these Anakim, and I will drive them out. God says, I will drive them out. Now, he's going to use the means of people, you know, that are obediently walking in that conquest, but it's going to be God who does it. And that's truly what Caleb's, um, uh, Caleb's, Hard is. He's wholly devoted to the Lord, so he knows. Doesn't matter his age, he can come in there and he can take out whatever Anakim remain in this land. And he does. <laughs> if you look at Joshua 15, you get a little bit of follow up. Uh, Joshua 15 13. Um, According to the commandment of Yahweh to Joshua, he, that is Joshua, gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the people of Judah. Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Arba was the father of Anak. We just it just said the same thing at the end of Joshua 14 there. And Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai, the descendants of Anak. And he went up from there against the inhabitants of Debir. Now the name of Debir formerly was Kiriath Saphir. And Caleb said, whoever strikes Kiriath Saphir and captures it, to him I will give, will I give Aksha, my daughter as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it. And he gave Aksa, his daughter, as wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So there you have kind of um, the full story of the whole of Caleb's allotment and includes... um, I don't know if he was just trying to get his daughter married off or if he needed help with Kiriath um, Saphir. But whatever the case is, he offers uh, his, his daughter to be um, the prize for whoever would help him to conquer this land. And it's Othniel, the brother of Caleb. Um, that would be her uncle. That's, that is something that happened in those days. There's a possibility that that word could mean just any relative and um, that was not necessarily um, forbidden uh, in this context, but it's probably her her uncle. Now, again, there's you could have all kinds of different age ranges. They could be the same age. That we don't have much description of this. Othniel, interestingly enough, he becomes the first judge in that period of the judges. So he becomes a rather significant man himself. So he is an honorable and good man, or else the Lord would not have called him to be a judge, at least 
Um, most of the judges at least started out as good and honorable men. Um, but Othniel does become one of the first judges of Israel after the conquest. So uh, what are some applications for, for this? Well, Gene Getz, found this quote from Gene Getz. Um, so this is an extended quote. But I think it, it highlights a few things about it, um, that it, about Caleb, that I just thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's really compelling. Because, yes, you can say, don't let old age hinder your ability to serve the Lord or be of use to the Lord. But I think Gene gets a, gets a little bit deeper than that, a little bit more than that. He says, a difficult thing for many of us is to be faithful when we're not in a prominent position. Somehow we function better when others know how well we're doing. This is a natural tendency. So positions that are up front and everyone sees. But the true test of our commitment to Jesus Christ is how well we function when we have to operate behind the scenes, even making it possible for someone else to be in the limelight. Caleb illustrates this kind of commitment as no other Bible character. Though the Bible says little about him compared with Joshua, what is written reflects a man who is Joshua's spiritual equal. In fact, in some respects, he excelled Joshua as a leader. But once God appointed Joshua as Moses' successor, Caleb stood quietly beside Joshua, often behind the scenes, doing God's will and supporting the Lord's chosen leader of Israel. When God instructed Joshua to divide the land among the tribes, Caleb stepped out of the shadows and walked onto God's great stage. He had waited 45 years for this moment. He remembered God's promise as if it were yesterday. I mean, it is true that when you read numbers and you hear about like what Caleb said, like he's the one that really stood up for their ability to, to take the promised land. It, it, the text says multiple times of Caleb that he was wholly devoted to the Lord. So Gene Getz is correct in saying that Caleb actually, you think, should deserve more focus or limelight. And yet in the book of Joshua, you've barely heard his name. Even though he's right there, one of the two men that were allowed to step into the promised land. Um, and for 45 years, he just faithfully kind of served the Lord. And I think there's something to say about that, let alone um, his, his willingness to continue to honor the Lord and to um, his, uh, his old age. Although, again, we made the comment that Moses died at 120. So 85 might not have been the same 85 as it is now. Um, so, you know, take that into account. Um, but I think the example of Caleb really is this. It's not about his age, like I said. But his fuel to do what he did, the fuel for his ambition and to serve God was the promise of God. He still knew that this promise was out there, that these Anakim, God said, need to be removed from this land. There was an unfulfilled promise or a promise to be, um, to be laid hold of. And so his desire was to, well, Joshua, if you're not going to do it, I will lay hold of it myself. I think that's a better um, maybe takeaway than just to say, you know, no matter your age, you can serve the Lord. I, I think really we should think about what is fueling our obedience. Is it fear? Is it just, I don't want to to go to hell, or I don't want God to do something bad to me? Well, that wasn't Caleb's motivation. Caleb's motivation was, there are promises of God to lay hold of. There are promises that if we want to, to run towards them, we will see God move. We will see God work. And so the question is, what are some promises that we can lay hold of? I mean, there's... there's Really, maybe the question is more, more this. What excuses are we holding on to? Rather than seeing the promise of God that he wants to see the whole world come to know him, and so that should motivate, excite our evangelism, and excite us to want to make disciples, what are the excuses to why we don't want to lay hold of those promises? So, Maybe what we need to do is go through the Bible again and read about some of these promises that he, that he has for believers. And we've talked about a lot of them in Ephesians and in Revelation even. Um, and just remind ourselves, if I try to lay hold of those promises, I will see God work because God said he's going to do this promise. Caleb was excited to see God work in Hebron. 
And so he said, this promise, I want to lay hold of it because then I will see God do exactly what he promised in Deuteronomy chapter 9. So he knew his word. So what are some promises that you can lay hold of today? What are some excuses that are holding you back from laying hold of those promises? If you're not a Christian today, and I, you know, I, everyone here in this room, at least I know, has made a profession of faith. That's nice about having a smaller group. But I don't know if you're listening to this, again, some other context. Um, if you're not a Christian, this all might seem um, just very like esoteric knowledge. You're talking about Noah and the flood. You're talking about Canaanites and people that, that don't even exist as a people anymore. What is the point of all this? Well, these are all reflections of history. These are all real places and real times. These are all real records of God keeping his promises. If you read the Bible, you will see a whole book full of a God, uh, full of the acts of God keeping his promises like no one else in your life ever has or ever will. The same God that promises there's judgment and justice for sin and the due penalty of hell for all those who rebel against God also promises to give forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That we see here the very nature of sin is so deep, uh, deeply embedded that even men like Noah, who were found to be so faithful to be the savior of the world, still sin. And we need a savior that is unimpeachable, who is perfect and sinless. And so God, even in the sin of Noah, was pointing to a savior who is perfect, Jesus Christ. And he's the only one that can reconcile us to God. Even here, we peer into a world where sin has cursed things and things are not as they should be, but God is going to make it right. He makes it right through Jesus Christ. And you can have your sins forgiven if you believe in the same Son of God, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and that He does love and has loved um, His people from the beginning of time. So, if you have any questions about that, you can. You can ask me after the, the, the message is over. If you want to talk about that uh, Nobel Prize in physics I mentioned this morning, <laughs> we can talk about that over dinner. Uh, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you have given us um, these rich promises, that we are inheritors, really, of the promise to Abraham that not only would he have descendants that would live in a certain place and have descendants, but that he would be a blessing to the world. And we know that that is true. Um, that you have blessed this world through Abraham by bringing through Abraham and his sons the Son of God and Son of Man, Jesus Christ, to be the, the sacrifice for our sins. So I pray, Lord, that even when we're kind of uh, neck deep in, in strange place names and historical events, that we wouldn't lose sight of these are all part of um, little, um, uh, little stones in the path uh, that lead us to the cross. So thank you, Lord, for the reminders today. We pray that you'd bless our time together as we eat and share fellowship around the table. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.